Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today's case is straight out of Canada, and yeah, I definitely didn't see any of this coming. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. April 24th of 2006 in Medicine Hat, Canada should have been like any other normal day for the Richardson family. They were a family of four, Mark and Deborah, and their two children, Jacob, who was eight, and Jasmine, who was 12. Mark and Deborah seemed to have a good thing going for them. They lived in a cute little split-level blue house in a quiet town, and Jacob and Jasmine had no trouble making friends. But all wasn't what it seemed on the outside, and this day would be anything but normal. That afternoon, a friend of Jacob's from the neighborhood came to see if Jacob could play, but when he rang the doorbell, no one answered, which isn't totally abnormal, so he went to turn around and leave, but something in the windows of the bottom level of the house caught his eye. It was a body, a bloody body. He ran home to tell his parents, who called police, and when police showed up, they never could have imagined what they were going to find inside. It was a massacre. Not only was there one body in the basement, there were two. Brenda was at the bottom of the stairs. She had been stabbed 12 times, but Mark was also in the basement. He'd been stabbed 24 times. The police knew there were two other kids who lived in the house, so they ran upstairs to check on them. And when they got into Jacob's room, the air was just ripped from their bodies. Eight-year-old Jacob was lying in his bed, dead. His throat had been viciously slit from one end to the other. I had a hard time adding that specific detail to this episode, but his injuries were heinous and deliberate. Someone violently murdered this eight-year-old boy in his bed. The authorities go to Jasmine's room, terrified of what they're about to find, but no one's there. Jasmine is not there. They checked the rest of the house to see if maybe she had been killed elsewhere, but Jasmine 100% was not in this house. They're not really sure what's worse, knowing what happened to Jasmine or not knowing what happened. Their initial thought was that whoever did this to her brother and her parents must have kidnapped her, so police release a statement saying that they're looking for anyone who's seen her. They want to make sure she's okay. They start going through her room and even her school locker to see if they can get any insight into what's going on in the family that may have sparked this unspeakable outcome and it doesn't go how they planned. Initially, you think maybe you'll find diary entries or something about a family in turmoil, maybe some crippling debt, something, but that's not what they find at all. What they find are deep, dark writings and drawings about a 12-year-old who was into goth culture, vampires, and her much, much older boyfriend. And as much as she loved those things, it's clear that she despised her parents, maybe even enough to kill them. So now there's a full-on manhunt. They need to find Jasmine, they need to make sure she's okay, and they need to see if she had anything to do with this. Your initial reaction is probably how in the fuck could a 12-year-old murder her entire family and why? But the deeper you get into this case, the less 12 Jasmine seems. And that even rang true for her neighbors. One of them said that she had no clue Jasmine was that young and that she frequently hung out with her 17-year-old son. 
I'll post pictures of Jasmine and she looks a solid 17 to 20. Definitely not 12. I mean, I have a 12 year old and if he brought home a girl that looked like her, I'd assume she was his teacher. Fast forward to the next day and the police are breaking records tracking people down. They find Jasmine two hours away in the town of Leader in a pickup truck with her teenage friend Casey and her 23-year-old boyfriend Jeremy Steink. Inside the truck was a newspaper covering the murder of her entire family. Jeremy looked like he had clearly been in a fight. And police had clearly been doing some serious investigative work because upon finding them, all three were charged. Casey was charged with destroying evidence and providing a fake alibi. And Jasmine and Jeremy were both charged with three counts of first degree murder. What the fuck? Once Jasmine and Jeremy are in jail, they start writing each other love letters. Jeremy actually proposed to the 12-year-old and she gladly accepted, you know, while awaiting their separate trials for the annihilation of Jasmine's family. Canada's justice system is a lot different than America's. When it comes to juveniles, the media can't even legally report their names. But this case went international so quickly that other countries were able to reveal Jasmine's identity, even though Canada couldn't. I mean, even when she went to court, she was put in a prisoner's box that concealed her identity. But because of the hush-hush that comes from the Canadian regulations, the only details that really came out prior to their trials were from their various social media accounts prior to them being taken down and from people reporting on Jeremy's investigation. The rest was kept pretty close to the vest. Both of them were extremely active on social media. They had accounts on Windows Live, MySpace, Nexopia, and Vampire Freaks, to name a few. Jasmine went by the name Runaway Devil, displayed that she was 15, and described herself as bisexual, Wiccan, nocturnal, awkward, loud, and a deep thinker and insane. According to her accounts, her interests included unnatural hair colors, dark poetry, criminal psychology, blood, human anatomy, and kinky shit. She's 12. Jeremy went by the names The General Lee 01, Soul Eater 52, and Death Spade, and claimed to work for the military or government, neither of which is true. As far as I can tell, he was unemployed and living in a trailer with a history of depression and a previous suicide attempt and an affinity for minors. When I was researching this case, I stumbled upon a post on WebSleuths where a woman talked about her 14-year-old niece running off a few years prior with a 20-year-old guy. The family had to declare her a missing person, they tried to get her to come back, and her aunt even offered to let her live with them if she didn't want to go back with her parents. But every time the family would try to get this little girl home, her 20-year-old boyfriend would threaten them. After a year and a half of back and forth and lots of convincing, the poster says that her niece finally came home and the guy she had run off with was allegedly none other than Jeremy Steink. And judging by his social media posts, his MO hasn't changed much. Between blog posts from both Jeremy and Jasmine, you could see a kind of forbidden love and it grosses me out to even call it love considering it's a child and an adult, but that's what they thought it was. Jasmine posted about going insane when her parents kept her inside her house for too long and posted questionnaires that asked if she'd ever been arrested. Her response was eerily, not yet. 
Her public posts were nothing compared to Jeremy's, though. On April 3rd, just 20 days before the killings, he wrote this poem. My lover's parents are totally unfair. They say that they really care. They don't know what's going on. They just assume as their greed continues to consume. She is slowly going insane. She continues to thank that I came into her life to help her out and to stop what they keep trying to shout. It's all total bullshit. Their throats I want to slit. They will regret the shit they have done, especially when I see to it that they're gone. They shall pay for their insolence. Finally, there shall be silence. Their blood will be payment. Jeremy's post left nothing to the imagination, and it only got worse. On the 20th, just three days prior to the killings, he posted a comment on a blog that read, Oh yeah? LOL. Hope you enjoy hitting yourself. I, on the other hand, would rather do morbid stuff to others, like Jasmine's parents, for example, which I'm going to do this weekend. No one ever reported a thing. I suppose no one thought he was serious, but everyone was wrong. On June 4th, 2007, a year after her family was murdered, Jasmine's trial finally starts and she pleads not guilty. But the details of her trial would be hard to refute. Her defense was basically that she was doing whatever Jeremy told her and worried that if she didn't, she would be next. And with that, she said that she stabbed her brother after Jeremy stabbed her parents 36 times in total because Jeremy told her to. She claims that while she stabbed her brother, Jeremy's the one who slit his throat. That being said, I haven't been able to find any reports that mention Jacob being stabbed, just the consistent report that his throat was slashed from one end to the other. There are a couple more versions of her events, though, depending on who you talk to. In a second version, it said that Jasmine admitting to killing her brother because it was better than leaving him without parents. Her defense doesn't hold up well as witnesses are called. Her parents had recently found out that she was dating a 23-year-old man and barred her from having any contact with him, which is what ignited her and Jeremy's rage against her family. And once that flame was ignited, it could not be put out. They presented her emails and according to the Huffington Post, she sent an email to Jeremy that said that she had a plan and it begins with me killing them and ends with me living with you. His response? Well, I love your plan, but we need to get more creative with like details and stuff. The court presents some letters between her and Jeremy after they were arrested for the murders where the two talk about how they're now legends and immortal. The prosecution attacks her theory that she was just doing what Jeremy told her by presenting evidence that shows this may have actually been her plan all along and that she didn't just talk about it with Jeremy. After the murders, it's reported that Jeremy didn't even wait for Jasmine. Jasmine cleaned up, washed the knives off in the sink, packed a bag, and then went over to Jeremy's house. I've read some reports that they go to a friend's house where there's a bit of a party going on, and people recall the pair bragging about what they'd done. And again, no one believed them until they heard the news the next morning. Following the killing of Jasmine's entire family, her and Jeremy hung out, made out, got something to eat, and then left town together, even stopping to pick up a paper and read the news about what they'd done before they were ever caught. 
In a shock to everyone in the courtroom, Jasmine took the stand in her own defense and told the jury that she had hypothetical conversations with people about killing her parents or making it look like a murder-suicide or an accident, but that she never intended on actually doing it. Well, the murder-suicide and accident angle is new information, and I'm pretty sure normal 12-year-olds don't have these hypothetical conversations. Frankly, I don't even think my 12-year-old would be able to use the word hypothetical in a sentence appropriately, but he also doesn't have an attorney. At the end of her testimony and the end of her trial, she told the court that while Jeremy was in the basement killing her parents, she was in her brother's room holding his ears so he wouldn't hear his parents' screams for help. Even if that is true, once they were finished screaming, she killed him. The jury was sent out for deliberations, and it only took them two hours to come up with a verdict. Jasmine Richardson became Canada's youngest convicted multi-murder in the country's history. But justice still might not be served. Because of her young age, the maximum penalty Jasmine can get is 10 whopping years. At the bare minimum, despite the depravity of what she inflicted on her entire family, she will ultimately be free by the time she's 22. And that's exactly what happened. She was sentenced to 10 years, four of it to be spent in the Edmonton Forensic Hospital as she's rehabilitated and re-entered into society. If all goes well, and I use that term loosely, her record will be completely wiped clean five years after her release. It will be like none of this ever happened. It'll be as if she's just any normal 27-year-old who didn't plot and participate in the brutal slangs of her mother, father, and eight-year-old brother. Jeremy's trial begins about a year and a half after Jasmine's in November of 2008, and if it's possible, his is even worse than hers. Once in jail, Jeremy sang like a fucking canary. The guy just wouldn't shut up and it obliterated any form of defense that he hoped to have. According to him, this was a plot between the two of them to wipe out her whole family so that they could be together. He bragged to another inmate that he killed Jasmine's parents while she finished off her baby brother and said that Jasmine's father's last words to him were asking why he was doing this, to which he responded, because your daughter wanted it that way. Because Jeremy is such a loudmouth son of a bitch, the jail decided to send in one of their own officers undercover as an inmate, and it did not disappoint. Right on schedule, Jeremy flapped his yapper and said, You hear about that triple homicide? Yeah, that's me. Me and my old lady have become legends. He brags to the officer that Jasmine had killed her brother and that it didn't even bother her, that she didn't cry and even laughed about it the following day. He told them that he planned to marry his 12-year-old bride in a gothic ceremony and move to Germany and live with her in a castle. Big dreams for a broke murderer in prison. As witnesses were called, things just got weirder and weirder and weirder. One friend testified that Jeremy had told him that he was a 300-year-old werewolf who liked to drink blood, and according to him, the vial of red stuff around Jeremy's neck was just that. He warned his friend not to come on a nighttime walk with him around the lake because he would tear him limb from limb. Another witness testified again that Jeremy said that he liked to drink blood and that he had even eaten a batch of sugar cookies that his friend had made with blood, saying that there was so much blood in them that the cookies were pink when they came out. This is the first and last time in the history of human mankind that someone tries to flex by saying they ate pink sugar cookies.
Another witness, a 16-year-old girl, another teenager, said that on the Saturday before the murders, Jeremy invited her over to his trailer where they watched the movie Natural Born Killers. The movie is about two serial killers in love who the tabloids follow along their 52-person killing spree. The first of the 52 were the girl's parents. As they watched the movie, this girl says that Jeremy told her his step-by-step plot to kill Jasmine's parents and told her that this plot would be different from the movie because in the movie, a young boy is saved, but he said that Jasmine's eight-year-old brother would have to die. At no point in time did eight-year-old Jacob stand a chance of surviving this attack on his family. Another friend of Jeremy's talks about how he would always come over and fly off the handle about how his girlfriend's parents were trying to keep them apart and would just go on and on and on about it until he would just stop and stare at nothing. He would go completely silent. It turns out that Jeremy had asked more than one of his friends for help in killing Jasmine's parents, and when they told him no, he threatened to implicate them if he was ever caught. The court presents a ski mask that was found in the pickup truck they were arrested in that tested positive for not only Jeremy's blood, but also the blood of one of the victims. According to them, Jeremy slipped into the first floor of the home, which was set a little into the ground since it was a split level, and he was wearing this ski mask in all black. Jasmine's mom heard him and turned on the light and immediately screamed, which sent her father rushing down there with a screwdriver. When he saw Jeremy, who was just a man in black wearing a mask to him, he charged him and allegedly stabbed him in the eye. And Jasmine's dad put up one hell of a fight. He fought for his life and the life of his family until Jeremy finally overpowered him. Jeremy claims that Jasmine's father almost choked him unconscious before he was able to stab him to death. I'm not sure what the point of that information was, if it was some sort of defense, because what the fuck do you expect when you break into someone's house with a knife, but nonetheless. The jury was given a walkthrough of the crime scene, which was a bloodbath. There was blood spatter on the walls, the ceiling, the floor, and on Jacob's toys that were laying on his bed next to him, one of them being the toy lightsaber that he allegedly tried to defend himself with. There were also bloody handprints all over the walls and blood trails throughout the house. When the jury was shown Mark and Deborah's multiple stab wounds and the slash across Jacob's neck, they sobbed and even had to ask for a recess. After the killings, we know that Jeremy and Jasmine went and hung out with some friends and bragged about the killings. One of those friends says that Jeremy told him he had gutted Jasmine's parents like fish. This friend also says that Jasmine told him that she had killed her little brother and that he gargled. And when he gargled, she just sat at the end of his bed and watched. Jeremy chose not to testify and the jury was released for deliberations. And just like Jasmine's case, it took almost no time to convict him on all three accounts. He was sentenced to life with the possibility of parole after 25 years. Americans are losing their shit right now, but at this point in Canada's judicial history, there were no congruent life sentences, so he couldn't get three. He could only get one. And all life sentences come with the possibility of parole after 25 years. This has since changed, and now you can serve multiple life sentences. So if he was given three, he wouldn't have the possibility of parole for 75 years, But again, this all happened back in 2006. In 2011, five years after the murder of her entire family, a judge reviewed Jasmine's sentence and decided that she was a low risk for future violence and would be allowed to resume living within the community in November. 
CBC Canada reported that she'd been going through an intensive rehabilitative custody and supervision sentence, and the last phase was reintegration into the community. I even read one article that said she was the poster child for rehabilitation, and I don't know how that made me feel, but I think it involved itching. Jasmine said that she was very grateful and that the program had really helped her grow. Once released, she was put into a group home kind of setting where she had to report to her probation officer once a week and notify them if she moved. She had to be home between 10 p.m. and 6 a.m. every night, and she was barred from using any illicit substances and banned from owning firearms for life, which I'd love to know how they're going to enforce if her record disappears at 27, but anyways... She was allowed back on social media, but was told that it would be closely monitored. In 2012, Jeremy tried to appeal his case under the name Jackson May. No, he had not formally changed his name, but wanted to be called Jackson May from now on. We all know who you are, Jeremy. The request for his appeal was sent too long after his sentence, so it was denied, and he threw a fit that he didn't know any better because he's not familiar with the legal system and blah, 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 but he's convinced that his jury came to an unreasonable verdict. I consulted myself and came to the conclusion that zero fucking people agree with him. He was instructed to file for an extension for the time frame for appealing, and if granted, he could try again, but as far as I've been able to find, I don't think he did. In 2014, Jasmine's curfew was loosened, and she was only bound to the home between 11.30 p.m. and 6 a.m. Monday through Thursday, and could frankly do whatever the hell she wanted as long as it was outside of that time frame. CBC Canada reports that Jasmine had been going to college this whole time at the University of Calgary and was actually set to graduate in 2015. In 2016, Jasmine was completely released from any and all supervision. As of 2020, she is free as a bird, living her life under a new name with a clean record. It's as if Jasmine Richardson never existed, and she never plotted and participated in the gruesome slangs of her parents and eight-year-old brother. There were countless times prior to Mark, Deborah, and Jacob's murder that someone could have said something, that someone could have reported either Jeremy or Jasmine's post online, that someone could have reported that Jasmine and Jeremy said they wanted to kill her parents, but no one took them seriously. Maybe if even one person had stepped up and reported what they heard or seen, the Richardson family might still be alive. If you see something, if you read something, if you hear something that puts anyone in danger, call the police. If it's nothing, then there's no harm done. But what if it is something? Because this was something, a big something, and no one said a word. For all photos pertaining to this case, check out Jasmine and Jeremy's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley, and join me there tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern where you go live with me and we talk about the insanity that is this case. If you like your podcast ad-free, head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, or for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you need more episodes in your life, for just $5 a month, you get a bonus episode on the first Monday of every month. All your episodes are ad-free, and you'll also receive a forever discount code for all Big Mad True Crime merch, and of course, anytime you sign up, you get instant access to all previous bonus episodes. I'll be bringing you a brand new case a week from today, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out.